Amen. Thanks, James. Yeah, I'm so pumped to get to do this. I, I'm really thankful to James and to the other elders for willing to l- take a chance on letting me speak this morning. I, 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 uh, I've been really fortunate through my life to have had really good teachers, um, starting with my dad. My entire childhood, got to listen to him just hammer the gospel into us. And then when I, when I decided to, not literally, to, <laughs> when I decided to follow Christ, I, I ended up at Westside Church and I got to listen to Norm and Matt for many years and now getting to listen to James and, and just be discipled by him and, and, and be close and, and Josh Duell as well. I'm, I'm just so thankful for, for who God's put in my life. And, and I'm so excited that God would use me even in this small way this morning to, to share with you guys what he's put on my heart and, and what I've learned from my time in, in this letter. I didn't realize it was time change Sunday that James was choosing me, cho- chose for me. So hopefully you're willing to listen to me on one last hour of sleep. We've been in this letter from Paul to the Galatians, and I hope you've been learning lots about the gospel and about what Paul's defending. He's, there's two things that have really stood out to me. One is that Paul has a huge passion for gospel accuracy. He wants us to get this right. He knows it's important. And two, he's passionate about defending the gospel. He hears that the Galatians have had some bad teaching and he writes to them in an effort to correct them and bring them back in under the blessings of God. So I'll try to catch you up a bit more. This letter was written to some churches in a Roman province called Galatia. Paul planted these churches and he began to see them growing in the gospel and growing in their love for each other. And then he left them and he continued on his missionary journeys. But he's heard that, but they, that they've started to drift away from the gospel, that these false teachers have come in. They've started to teach that, yes, you're right to choose God. You're right to choose Jesus as Savior and trust in his death and resurrection. But you also need to hold on to these old covenant laws, these laws of circumcision, the food laws, the probably the sacrificial laws as well that, that they were tricking them into to requiring. And they did this, we'll learn this in chapter six, that they did this in order to not be persecuted by their, the Jewish leaders in the area. But here's the problem with those instructions. Paul is very clear that to add anything to the gospel leaves no gospel at all. When we add to subtract from or alter the gospel that is laid out for us in this book, then we are outside of God's promise and we are not covered by Jesus' sacrifice. We have to hold to the true gospel and we have to defend it in our culture too, just like Paul defends it in his. Last week, Paul showed the Galatians in the first part of chapter four and James showed us that our decision to follow Christ is much bigger than just our decision. When you put your faith in Jesus for your right standing with God, God then actually adopts you into his family and you become God's child with all of the inheritance that comes with it. And this week, Paul's going to get personal. He's going to remind the Galatians of who they were before he came to them and what happened when he was with them. Paul so badly wants these Galatians to return to the gospel and trust in their position as God's children instead of leaning on their own works. And I know that's been James's heart for us 
through this series as, he been, as he's been teaching us that, that trusting in Christ and Christ alone is the only way to be right with God and the only way to experience his power in and through our lives. So I want to read our text. It's Galatians 4, verse 8 through 20. If you have a Bible, it's like almost 90% of the way through the book. And you can find it there. Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Let me pray for us. God, I need your help right now so badly. I, I need your assistance to teach this. Holy Spirit, I need you to speak through me. If, if this is gonna take root in anyone's heart here today, it has to be from you. So God, would you do that? Would you come to us? Would you prepare our hearts right now? to listen, to listen well. Help me to speak well. And God, would you apply it to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by asking us a question this morning. What do you think it takes for us to follow Jesus, for someone to make a decision to follow Jesus, to decide that the 80-ish years that we have here are better lived for Jesus than for ourselves. I read, I read recently about a community in Northern Africa, a community of Christians. They're persecuted there. It's probably a Muslim country. And when new followers come to Christ, their teachers tell them, make a list of the 10 people you know who are least likely to kill you for following Jesus. And then go and share the gospel with those 10 people. That doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody decide that Jesus is worth living for, worth dying for? Why would someone risk their life like this? In this text, Paul's going to pull back the curtain on some spiritual realities of the gospel. 
I want us to focus in on what takes place and what has to happen for somebody to choose Jesus. Along the way, we'll see how understanding these realities will keep us from trusting in anything other than the true gospel. Look again with me at verse 8 to 11. We'll zone in there for a minute. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul starts this section by reminding the Galatians of who they were before he met them. They'd been following their culture at the time. Galatia was a Roman province, so they would have been mixed up with the Roman teachings and and probably worshipped the Roman gods at the time. Paul tells them that not only were you following them, not only were you there before Jesus knew you, before you knew Jesus, but you were slaves to those that by nature are not gods. What exactly is he saying that they were enslaved to? Verse eight, he says, to those that by nature are not gods. Who are those? And he says, they're turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. What are those? Well, you could interpret this as sin. We are enslaved to sin before we come to know God. That is true. But I think he's talking about something more here. And we can look quickly at Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. This is a different letter to a different church. And you were dead, verse 1 to 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The prince of the power of the air, who's that? That's not Jesus. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's not the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about demonic dark spiritual forces. Satan, if you don't know who that is, Satan is the angel who first decided that God wasn't worth following. He fell away from God. He rebelled against God and he took a whole bunch of angels with him. And, and that's, that's who makes up the dark spiritual forces. It's, it's something to unpack another time, but it's, it's very true. And because naturally, like Paul says, we're by nature children of wrath, naturally we are all rebellious to God. We are naturally slaves to these dark spiritual forces, even when we think we're building our own kingdoms and not Satan's. But Paul says in his letter to the Colossians that God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But in an effort to stay True to this text, I, I think there's something else, even though, even though that does absolutely apply here. I think Paul is talking about our most basic human nature that finds its value in performance. And that's where the Galatians came from. They, they would have had to perform to meet the standards of the false gods that Rome had set over them. 
and they were trying to put themselves back under a performance-based structure by attempting to put themselves under the Mosaic Covenant. And this is so relevant to us today, isn't it? We, we have to perform in 2020 to maintain our, our value to our employers, often to our, our teachers or our coaches or even ourselves. We so often connect our value with our own performance and with our achievements. But this book, this book flips that idea on its head. We are made in God's image. Our value as humans is rooted in our identity as God's creation, not in our performance. And last week, we discovered that not only does he value us as humans, but as Christians, he looks at us as his own kids. So what has to take place? What what has to happen for somebody to go from slavery to a performance-based identity and become adopted into God's family? How can we go from this state of not knowing God to knowing God? And here's our first point, our first spiritual reality that leads someone to trust Christ. God has to come to know us before we can come to know him. Look back at verse nine. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Paul writes that and and he could have easily written it differently. He could have said, but now that God has come to know you, but I, I I think he's trying to make a point to us that there's a balance here to strike. And the reality is that, sorry, Paul just subtly sneaks this into the passage. The idea that God chooses us and enables us to know and love him, this reality is so critical to understanding and realizing our adoption as sons and daughters of the king. Our value is rooted in our relationship with God not in what we can accomplish for God. This entire book, this, the Bible, is, is a story of how God has chosen to know people throughout history. He started with Abraham in the covenant he made with him to make a nation out of him, and that, and that became a covenant with Israel. He chose to know Israel. He chose to deliver Israel from the slavery that they were in Egypt. And after he brings them through the Red Sea, Israel tries to go back to Egypt, but God even delivers them from that decision. Church, we would have never chosen God on our own. It is only by God's grace that he has chosen to know us, just as he chose to know Israel. But I want to back this up with scripture. What did Paul say about this elsewhere? Look at Ephesians 1. It's going to be on the screen. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Did you catch it? Predestined for adoption as 
sons. And, and Paul is using inclusive language here. This applies to men and women today. He's pointing to the rights of a firstborn son in ancient times. And that's, that's why he says to sons. We are elected as children of God. We have the rights of a child and our identity is in Christ instead of ourselves because God has chosen to know us since before the foundation of the world. God chose to know us when he chose to know Israel and when he chose to know these Galatians. Okay, we see what Paul says, but often we'll, people will argue, well, that was Paul. Jesus never said that, but I want us to see that this was something that Jesus taught. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus knows us just as the father knows him and he knows the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knows his own. Jesus has sheep that aren't in this church today. And that should fuel our evangelism to know that Jesus has chosen people who are out in our communities. He's chosen to know them and he wants us to go find them. He, he, is using us to go after the one sheep that is lost. But he, and he's going to bring them in. They will listen to his voice because they're his. But I don't want to ignore some potential difficult questions that this brings up. The idea that God has to choose us before we can know him, it hits us right in our pride. And maybe you're thinking that it sounds a little bit like coercion. Is God forcing us to love him? Is he really doing that? Would a loving father force their child to love him? There is an element of mystery in this concept and how it works. In one place, Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the father draws them and in another place, he says he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone opens the door, he will come in to eat with them. So which is it? Does God draw us or do we invite Jesus in? The answer is absolutely yes to both. God has chosen us to become his adopted kids since before the foundation of the world. In his perfect divine wisdom, he knew that we are incapable of responding to the good news of the gospel because we are so set in our broken, selfish ways. So he works a miracle in us. He comes to those he has chosen to know and he reveals his glory to them. He sends the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to our own rebellion. He gives us the faith we need to recognize him as God. He gives us the faith we need to confess our sin and to accept Jesus' perfect record in our place. God then gives us the Holy Spirit into our hearts as a seal 
and as a guarantee that we really are his adopted kids. Our lives then become reordered by the truth of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit who has come to live within us and he enables us to progress in sanctification. We don't follow Jesus because God has coerced us. We follow Jesus because he loves us enough to let us see ourselves for who we are and to see him for who he is. Now, this does not relinquish us of the requirement to respond to the gospel. This book is abundantly clear that we have to repent of our sins and turn to follow Jesus in order to be saved on judgment day. But at the same time, if we are able to do, to do that, it's because God has chosen to know us. This reality can make our heads spin a little bit, can it? And I think that's good for us. We will never in this life fully unpack the character of God or his plans. He is too big and we are too small and, and his plans are perfect while ours are riddled with imperfection. And why, why has God set it up this way? It's because he wants the glory. He wants us to worship him and give him the credit. If we could choose God without the spirit first regenerating our hearts, then that means we would have a claim to our salvation. The, the Galatians would have had a claim to their salvation. We would have worked to get to God. Think of Will Smith in the movie Hitch, where he's teaching his clients how to impress women and, and go on dates with them. He teaches them that when you kiss a girl, you go 90% and they come the last, let them come the last 10%. And, and I wasn't planning on sharing it while my wife was here, but I, I didn't do that when we first started dating. I kissed her when her, our first kiss was when her eyes were closed and she, and she didn't know it was coming. But don't follow my advice. I mean, it worked out really well, but, but God doesn't do that. That's not the gospel that Paul taught the Galatians. Our response, our faith is a gift from God. If we could come to God on our own, if, we, if God came 90% and he expected us to come the last 10%, then we would have done a work to get to God. It wouldn't be fully God working. Then the gospel would not be driven by grace alone, but it would also be about our works. And Christianity would be just like every other religion in the world. This is a magnificently deep truth of Christianity and it should leave us spinning and in awe and wonder of the God who chooses to rescue anyone, who chose to rescue us. Have you looked at the cross this way before? A holy and loving God who needed nothing. He wanted you. He loves you and he wants to know you. He made a way for you to be rescued from your brokenness by stepping into the brokenness and paying the penalty for your sin against him. Jesus died for us and took all the pain of God's wrath upon himself so that you and I could be right with God. And Jesus didn't stop there. He came back to life after three days to prove that our debt was fully paid 
and to defeat death and disarm Satan and take away his last weapon that he has against us. And then Jesus sends us his spirit who enables us to have faith in him and enables us to live into our identity as God's kids. That's the gospel that Paul is defending. But the Galatians are forgetting it. Paul says that they're turning back in this verse. He, he, he says they're turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. They're returning to their performance-based identity, the same slavery they were saved from, except that this time their slavery, instead of being obvious to false gods, it's now, looks, now what it looks like is it's following Jesus, but disguised their performance-based identity is disguised with good religious works. They begin keeping these laws, only, but in an effort to make themselves right with God. And Paul's worried that he may be laboring over them in vain. By submitting to these old covenant laws as a method to bring themselves into right standing with God, the Galatians were placing themselves back under humanity's curse and moving away from the gospel. In effect, the Galatians were putting Satan's weapon back into his hand. And church, if, if we can, and if the Galatians had, if the Galatians had really grabbed a hold of their identity as God's kids who already have full access to their father, they would have known not to listen to these false, false teachers. And so I want us to really get this. I want us to really believe and, and have the faith that it takes to, to know that we are God's kids. If, if we have faith in Jesus, we, we have this same access that, that Jesus had when he prayed in the garden. And let me ask you this, does, does this same attitude exist in our church today? What's motivating you to be here right now? What motivates you to serve in church on a Sunday morning? What motivates you to help that single mother with three kids who needs to buy Christmas gifts? What's your drive behind that? Are you trying to do something to make yourself look good to God? Because that's not going to work. That Our good religious work should only be done out of a grateful heart that is responding to the gospel. We should be so captivated by Jesus and by the fact that he has chosen us to be his kids that we want to serve, that we want to love others. And we can so easily fall into this same trap. And our pride has to be broken for us to truly let Jesus be the only thing that makes us right with God. So church, know this truth. Know, know that you are God's kids. Know that he has a place for you in heaven where you get to go someday and, and you're gonna reign, we're gonna reign with him and we're actually gonna judge the world with him. That's crazy. He's gonna, we're gonna do that with him. So know that truth and meditate on it often so that it gets into your heart and that you really believe it. So that's spiritual reality number one. Two to go. First one, God chooses to know us before we can choose to know him. The gospel is personal. Our second spiritual reality that has to take place for someone to come to know Jesus is that the gospel has to come to us with power if we are going to believe it. Let's read verse 12 to 16. 
Former, uh, brothers, verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul's saying that the Galatians should become like him in his giving up of the Mosaic law, for even he, a Jew, gave it up and became, in a way, like a Gentile. You did me no wrong, he says. You know, he, he's not, he wants them to know he's not writing them because he's upset with them over something they did. He is upset with them. Next piece. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What's he getting at in, in these verses? What, what's he trying to say? He, he's reminding them of, of when he came to them. He, he, Paul was probably on some sort of missionary journey. Maybe got sick. Some scholars think he had malaria for whatever reason. And, may, and perhaps he traveled into their town to get well and just needed a bed. And, and, and the Galatians took him in. They, they received him. And when Paul shared the gospel with them, the Galatians believed it. And why, why, would, why would someone believe a message from somebody who's so sick and weak? There's no power in that person who's sick and weak. So why would they do it? And it's because the message has power, even if the messenger doesn't. And the power isn't in the messenger. It's in the one who puts the power into the message. And this fact should encourage us to share the gospel like Paul did. God wants to use us. He wants to use you to make disciples. Paul says elsewhere that we are ambassadors for Christ. God is now making his appeal through us. This Paul who, who experienced, why does Paul feel this way? He, Paul experienced Jesus directly coming to him. He, what, he says that the Galatians are acting like Jesus has actually come to them. That's not, that didn't actually happen. But Paul is saying that it's, it's like they did. And, and it's especially striking because Paul actually experienced that. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, he had a massive experience where Jesus came to him, showed up, and Paul did a complete 180. And he went from persecuting the Christian church to being persecuted for sharing the same message from the Christian church. And it's because the gospel came to him with power that this happened. And because God chose to know Paul. And Paul says that the same power that enabled him to believe the gospel is the same power that enabled the Galatians to believe it as well. The same Jesus who spoke to Paul on his way to Damascus is now using Paul to speak to the Galatians, to open their eyes to their fallen reality and, and, and church the gospel has to come to us with power if we're going to believe it. I want to have a look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. I'll just read it off the screen here. For, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me, let me put it to you this way. L listen to the foolishness in my own decision to follow Jesus. I decided that the 80 years I have here are wasted if I live for myself. They are better spent worshiping and following a God who created the world, allowed that same world to become broken, and then let himself be nailed to a cross in his plan to redeem the world from its brokenness. How foolish does that sound? And I'll be honest with you, I don't find it foolish at all. And it's not, I don't feel that way because of the evidence. I've looked into the evidence and it's good, it's strong. And I, I, I don't feel that way because of the evidence or because I've tried every other option. I've, I've, I have looked other places to find real joy and find happiness, but, but I haven't looked everywhere. But it's because God at a certain time in my life, he, he chose to reveal his glory to me. He chose to reveal my weakness compared to his strength. He chose to bring the gospel to me with power. God has set his affections on us. He has died for us. The gospel comes to us with power whenever our sovereign God chooses to, and the spirit then enables us to believe it. And this will separate us into two camps today. Those of us here who find the gospel beautiful instead of foolish have been or are being adopted into God's family. He became sin who knew no sin that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's how God sees us. But to those of you who don't find the gospel beautiful, you find that foolish. Can I ask you this? What, what of your kingdom is gonna last? What ultimate purpose does your life have at this moment? If this is all there is, 80 years of the of life's emotional highs and lows, then you die and that's it. What's your purpose in that? Where does your value come from? But even if you don't believe the gospel, God has declared that you do have intrinsic value because you are, sorry, let me say that again. If, even if you don't believe the gospel, God has declared that you have intrinsic value. You are still made in God's image and you are welcome to follow Jesus. You are welcome to accept the reality that there is so much more to life. The gospel can come to you with the same power that it came to the Galatians, the same power that it came to Paul. And it's an offer that's on the table for you today. Would, would, would you accept it? Would you let yourself be known and, and chosen by God? So that's two of our spiritual realities. The first was that in order for us to come to know God, God has to choose to know us. And the second, the gospel has to come to us with power if we're gonna believe it. And our third spiritual reality will be true of us after we begin to follow Jesus. So I'll read the rest of our, our text for us. Verse seven, I'll make a few comments along the way. Verse 17 to 20. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. So it seems as if these false teachers were bragging about their converts to their form of Jewish Christianity. Back to the, back to the verse. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. 
the teachers wanted the Galatians excluded from the real gospel so that the Galatians would praise their false teachers instead of Jesus. Back to the verse. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. It seems that Paul is encouraging that, them that praise is good if it's prefaced with gospel truth. He wants them to understand their gospel identity even when he's not around. And verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Our third spiritual reality is this. If God has chosen to know you, if the gospel does come to you with power, then Christ will be formed in you. It's, it's an unusual metaphor that Paul uses. It's, it's definitely strange. He starts with the idea that he is in labor for these Galatians, his new, the, the people he's been discipling. He's in labor for them to experience their new birth in Christianity. And we're, we're, more, we're familiar with that idea that of the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you actually have to be born again. And Nicodemus is, is confused. He's like, I, how, how am I going to do that? I can't go back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's a spiritual birth that has to take place. You actually have to be made new. And, and this is figurative language from Jesus, we all know we don't physically enter back in to our mother's womb and, and get born again. But in another sense, this is very true to our Christian experience. When God gets a hold of someone's heart, their desires begin to change, their pursuits begin to change, and that person is made completely new. I was made new. I, I began recognizing my sin and I started to hate it. And that's what the Spirit does, and it, and it takes time. It's a process of, of God sanctifying us, and it takes time, but, but the Galatians should have been further along than they were. And I think we're, we're often less familiar with the second half of this metaphor that he's in a, the, he is in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. And he's perplexed that it's not happening. So what's he, what's he getting at? What is it to have Christ formed in us? Paul's going to get into this a lot more in chapter five, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with a, a sample of what this looks like. The apostle John records one of Jesus's prayers to the father. We can read it in John 17. It's going to be on the screen, just a couple verses. Jesus prayed this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That you and I, that our church would be one even as the Father and Jesus are one. It's so amazing. I in them and you in me, the Father in Jesus, Jesus in us and the Father in Jesus. That they may become perfectly one 
And why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is so cool. The idea that Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God, is in us just as the father is in him. And for what reason? So that we as a church can have unity which centers around our shared relationship with Jesus, that centers around the true gospel. And that's when the world, Jesus says that that's when the world is going to know that he is who he says he is, that the Father sent him. And that's, in short church, that's when we're going to see people coming to know God. That's when we're going to see the gospel coming with power is when we as a church community learn to love each other so radically that our communities can't help but notice. When we begin to engage in ministry like Jesus did, when we love each other like Jesus loved his disciples, when you share the gospel like Jesus did, and when you pray for people like he did, And Paul's perplexed that this process of Christ being formed in the Galatians has been derailed by these false teachers, by their drifting from the gospel. Because they're trying to return to their former identity, Christ can't be formed in them. We can only be formed into the image of Christ and have Christ formed in us when we rest in our identity as God's kids. So I want us to pray for this right now together. I want us to ask God to show us where we're not loving each other as radically as we should be, where Christ isn't being formed in us. What is stopping Christ from being further formed in us, church? Let's pray that the gospel would come to our friends with power, our families with power. And then we'll, then we'll respond by taking communion this morning. We'll sing to our God and to, together and, and we'll worship him for choosing to know us so that we could know him. Let's pray. God, I'm so amazed by the truth of the gospel. I'm blown away that you invite us to call you Father Show us where we are not resting in our new identity. God, would you show us what's stopping Christ from being formed in us? Jesus, help us to stop white-knuckling our way through our Christian lives. Help us to trust in you and trust that the Spirit is going to do the work. Teach us to lean into you and rest in your grace and in our position as your kids. Amen. Uh, we're going to respond now with, with singing. We're going to worship God together. We're going to pray. There, there'll be some people over in this corner to pray with you if, if you'd like to respond with prayer. And we're also going to respond by taking communion. This, this table is set for us. Jesus, when he before he died on the cross, he, he instituted this sacrament of taking the bread and the wine or the juice, however you feel, taking this and partaking in his death and in his resurrection. And Paul actually says in his letter to the Corinthians that when we take this, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes.
So I ask you, don't, out of respect for Jesus and respect for the gospel, don't take this today if you're not serious about it. Don't take it unless you trust Christ. So I encourage you to sing and respond. And if you haven't trusted Christ, would you, would you do that today? Would you take him as your Lord and Savior? And if you do do that, let somebody know. Somebody around you, come, I'll be up here. You can come pray with me or, or come pray with anyone. And then I'll close us out after the band's done singing. Thanks.